0: On the Way Home is proudly supported by Don Community Builders, a group formed within the Don group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Don's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdawn.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on.
1: Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am one of your hosts, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, and as always, I am joined by the very talented and expert in communications, Stefania. Stefania, how are you?
0: I'm good, Michael. I feel like you're specifically getting nicer in your intros because you know how uncomfortable it makes me. <laughs> but I love it all the same because it also pumps me up for the day. So I really appreciate it too. Um, but I'm good. You know, I feel like summer is definitely here on the West Coast. Um, it's really, really sunny, as you can see um, through my screen. But yeah, good. How are things over at Blue Door?
1: You know what? It's it's a Good month. We're excited. And we're excited today because there's a big announcement. There's always big announcements from the Canadian Alliance on Homelessness that Blue Door wants to get behind, of course. And today... Uh, it's not just any vote. It's a vote for housing. And, and tell us a little bit about that.
0: For sure. Yeah, it's been my whole morning and last couple weeks um, and late nights. But today we launched uh, the vote housing campaign, which we're basically mobilizing uh, voters across Canada to pledge to vote housing. And the idea is that we have uh, a six point policy platform that we think will. Uh, will or we know it's evidence-based of course that we know will help get us out of the housing need and homelessness crisis that we have today in Canada so the idea is that we're getting voters excited we're getting them um, to know all about that plan to stand behind it so that when the federal election that we know is coming this year at some point um, when those candidates uh, seeking seats of power knock on their door saying vote for me voters can ask directly well what are you doing for housing and homelessness? What are you doing? Here's Vote Housing, you know, and we want to see um, our policies reflected in any party platforms that we see come out. So, yeah, VoteHousing.ca or VoteLogement.ca. I am not going to spell that, but you can link to it through the VoteHousing.ca site. And yeah, super pumped and super appreciative uh, for Blue Door support too, because you guys are you guys are awesome.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, it's exciting times. And when we talk about good policy, uh, alongside of that comes good research. And I'm excited to talk about our guest today, who's done a lot of work and, and research in this area, all the way over from the UK. So let me tell you about Dan McCulloch. So he's a lecturer in criminology and social policy at the Open University in the UK. His research has explored aspects of homelessness, such as the ways which people experience homeless or people experiencing homelessness talk about their experiences as well the ways in which their lives are discussed in government policy. So again I link to policy. In addition to this he's also carried out research which examines the experience of deaf prisoners in the UK and studies exploring research methods in the social sciences. Um, Dan welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Yeah, we're really excited to have you here and, um, you know, you're in the criminology and social policy department at your university, as Michael mentioned, but much of your work focuses on homelessness or social causes. Can you walk our listeners through your journey into this work?
2: Sure. So uh, I had some family members and friends who had experienced different forms of homelessness. So in one case, sofa surfing and another case, rough sleeping for a short amount of time. And I saw what they'd experienced and started to wonder why homelessness still exists and in such large numbers. This, to me, suggests that something about the current system isn't working all the time. And so I wondered, well, if that's the case, why do we have these current systems and why do we have these ways of working? What's good about them? What could change? So I started to question policy approaches and through that became more and more interested in understanding about homelessness and rough sleeping.
1: You know, when you say it, it's it's interesting, but uh, we call it couch surfing here. Sofa surfing makes it seem so elegant, and absolutely, it is absolutely not. Um, but uh, let's talk about homelessness across the UK. There's a lot of similarities, I'm sure, to homelessness in North America in Canada. But if you can help us understand what it looks like across the UK in the four nations.
2: Sure. So in the UK context, there are two sorts of statistics that tend to be produced about homelessness. So these are what call, what are called statutory homelessness statistics. So these refer to the number of people who are legally entitled to housing support from the government, from the state. And then rough sleeping statistics, which estimate the number of people who are sleeping in places not designed for habitation. It's also important to say at this point that there's no single unified approach to measuring or trying to estimate the extent of homelessness or rough sleeping in the UK, it varies from nation to nation. And those variations make a difference for the kind of statistics that we see. And then on top of that, some of the data isn't always comparable or reliable for year on year comparisons, because in some cases, the ways in which people measure or or, or try to understand the extent of rough sleeping or homelessness changes over time. And of course, that affects the kinds of data that are produced, the kind of numbers that we get. If we take the four nations in turn, if we look at England, first of all, and think about trends over the past few years, there's some suggestion that statutory homelessness has increased somewhat over the past 10 years, around 40% since 2010 and that rough sleeping has increased by more than 50% in that time. In Wales, there's suggestion that statutory homelessness has increased slightly uh, since 2015, but before that, uh, that, that it, it come down a lot from before that time um, due to changes in legislation in Wales that reduced the, the incidence of, of homelessness there. And that rough sleeping um, shows an increase in Wales between 2015 and 2019. In Scotland, both statutory homelessness and rough sleeping seem to have been fairly stable over the past few years, over the past five years or so. And in Northern Ireland, official statistics suggest that um, statutory homelessness has increased since 2010 by somewhere about a quarter, about 25%. But also it's difficult to know trends to do with rough sleeping because the data for Northern Ireland just isn't reliable enough over that time. I think as well, it's worth saying that looking at this on a national level is useful, but this can also mask local differences and variations. So if we think city to city, there are large variations. I'm I'm sure this is probably the case in, in Canada as well, that there are large variations, city to city. And also between urban and rural spaces, different kinds of homelessness, different extents. And, and I should say as well the, the data that I was talking about there is pre-pandemic because COVID-19 has just changed the, the, the data so much in terms of some of this stuff. And really, it's hard to know how that will influence the trends over time.
1: Well, let's talk about that. Let's expand about that. And thanks. And and some of the, the work, I, I know when you talk about from uh, city to city, from nation to nation, I, you know, Wales has done duty to assist in other things. I know uh, different efforts that have made, been made in Scotland, etc. cetera. But let's talk about the pandemic. How has that uh, played a part? Has, has homelessness increased or what have you seen so far? I know it's early days.
2: So there are some suggestions that the pandemic has or, or measures that governments have taken during the pandemic have reduced the incidence of homelessness and rough sleeping for the moment. Um, it's difficult to know in the long term whether that will be sustained or not. I think that, that depends on what kinds of policies we see in the long term and, and the kind of funding that we'll see there. There's some concern that in the longer term if these policies go back to the way they were and if funding changes um, and reduces probably back in line with where it was, that we'll probably see large increases in 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 homelessness, particularly because there will be increases related to to incidents of homelessness that will have built up over that time that won't necessarily have come to fruition during the pandemic itself.
0: Absolutely yeah you know in Canada over the last several years we've seen at a federal level an increase in spending on housing and homelessness compared to the last like 20 years because previous to that there was um, a lot more commitment a lot more housing um, being invested in at the national level Um, and then I think our concern now is the pandemic um, allowed spending like we've never seen a uh, kind of across the board obviously not just for our sector um, but the concern of course is that austerity measures are really going to it's like when that pendulum swings back so um, can you talk to us a little bit more specifically about some of the austerity measures that have been taken in the uk um, and as a result what's happened to some of the uk's most vulnerable
2: yeah of course yeah so so in the uk austerity is um, kind of largely seen as, as being related to the election of a coalition government in 2010. So 2010 is kind of the key period for, for thinking about the start of austerity in the UK. And in terms of homelessness, I think there are, are two big impacts here. There's the impact in terms of the increase of, of people experiencing homelessness, and then the impact on the way that services work to and service provision in this area works. So In the UK, so-called welfare reform, this is changes to social security or the welfare benefit system, went hand in hand with these austerity measures. And this often is seen as making access to social security payments more difficult for people. This has had a direct impact on the number of people experiencing homelessness. And at one stage, it was estimated that about two thirds of of local councils of local authorities in, in England had seen rises in rough sleeping related directly to this welfare reform. And then in addition, it impacts on people's ability to meet their basic needs, such as having washing facilities, food, clothing, these really basic things that we would consider um, as as key for people. And then in terms of the impact on services, there are fewer homelessness services and bed spaces compared with 2010, quite large reductions. So uh, about 30 30% 30% in terms of the number of accommodation services uh, reduced over that time, and a, a just over 20% reduction in the number of bed spaces available for people over that time as well. And then, in addition to that, we've seen a reduction in the number of wider services. That might be related to homelessness that might help to prevent homelessness or support people in terms of moving out of homelessness, such as support services for people who are victims of domestic abuse or or mental health support services. So the result of this for, for homelessness services is that they're not just supporting more people over this time because of the increased number of people experiencing homelessness, but they're also trying to deal with a wider range of issues that would previously have been picked up by the services. So they're they're really up against it really compared to where they were. And then uh, what this means is that they're often having to make really difficult decisions about who to support. So you get specialist services that are often only able to support people with the most acute needs. And then you get more general support services who aren't able to support people who who might need a a higher level of uh, of support and so what you you see is that people tend to fall through the cracks in provision and of course that was always the case but where the 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 kind of cracks have widened over that time of course there's more space to kind of fall through those cracks if you like and and so more people are falling through them I think is, is what we see and then in this time governments have also reduced overall funding levels for services, and then have trickled funding back to those services, claiming to be supporting the sector by providing so-called additional funding. But this is only additional funding in the sense of of it being additional to that very scaled back funding. So we saw this back in 2016, when the government at the time claimed that they were providing 115 extra million pounds to create 2,000 extra bed spaces for services that sounds like a lot of funding and a lot of bed spaces. But actually, this was less than half of the bed spaces that have been lost since 2010. So what this means is that governments are kind of allowed to claim legitimacy by saying, oh, we're providing funding for the homelessness sector. We're doing everything that they need, whilst in actual fact they're scaling back the funding. And then on top of that, (laughs) so even further than that, we see reductions in the the general funding pot for homelessness services, and instead the funding kind of gets diverted to more specialist pots by governments. So this ties it very uh, specifically to certain criteria that services have to meet in order to gain this funding. Now, this allows governments to exert a level of control over the sort of services that they say are legitimate, and the sort of services that they say aren't legitimate so they're then able to control the narrative in a greater way uh, in terms of what kinds of services are seen as legitimate or not and and so it's harder for services to get access to this funding in all cases and and only some services then become able to get that funding and others kind of find it increasingly difficult so ironically i think what we see is that services are a kind of experiencing the same insecurity, the same kind of precariousness that people accessing those services are finding in terms of government policy and government ways of of doing things and having to meet very specific criteria. It's not just people accessing those services and now seeing that, it's the services themselves uh, uh, that are having to try and work with that too. So kind of bringing that together, I suppose austerity has meant that opportunities to reduce homelessness have been lost in some cases whilst at the same time governments have been able to to say hey we're doing everything that we should be doing and are able to exert a greater control over what actually is going on on the ground.
1: It's fascinating stuff Dan Uh, in Ontario Canada in the early 2000s we had a government that reduced uh, social assistance welfare um, cut it by 20% we've never recovered and so you think about that was 20 years ago, really, that that happened. The levels are below what they were in 2000, but of course, cost for people, the cost of housing, and it's just exploded, uh, cost of living, et cetera. We've never really recovered um, you know, from that as well. And, and I find when government steps out of policy and funding and into direct service and how that service should be, they need to leave that to the experts that are doing it on the grounds, right? And, and to you know, let them do their work, keep finding when they step into that realm because they're so since regulated or don't have the flexibility it isn't the best service model uh, for the end users which is people experiencing homelessness so it's fascinating stuff and let's talk about those people experiencing homelessness Um, a lot of your research has talked about how people experiencing homelessness are represented or or not uh, in policy can you help us understand that
2: sure so In the UK, and I think it's the case in lots of Western nations, in broader policy terms, homelessness is often framed or thought about in terms of who is seen as deserving of our support and sympathy and who is not, who is seen as undeserving of that. So this is often tied to ideas about how someone became homelessness, the perception of the the cause of their homelessness. And these broadly can be split into ideas of individual and structural causes. So individual causes are those that, that as the name suggests, kind of are related to us as individuals. And and within this, we can again kind of split this down into those that are seen as things that we can control and those that we can't control. So things that we can control might be, for example, things like financial mismanagement, um, substance use, um, uh, antisocial behaviour. And then those that might be outside of our control might be things like physical disabilities, mental health difficulties. And then when we think about structural issues, these might be things like the loss of um, a person's job uh, through redundancy or something like that. Things that people often aren't aren't seem to be able to control. So there are these, this idea that we can control some of the causes of homelessness and we can't control others. And so this then, links us to this idea that in some cases people are responsible for their homelessness in policy terms and in some cases people aren't responsible for This this kind of perception. And, and to be fair, we see that even outside of, of, of formal policy, in media, in common sense ways of thinking about homelessness. This is really, really ingrained and it, it kind of makes sense that it is because it's been policy for hundreds of years. In the UK, for example, we see it in vagrancy laws this idea that there are some people that are idle and need controlling because they're of bad character. So they need punishment for this to, to get them to change their ways. And in the poor laws in the UK, which are 400 years old, I mean, they're, they're no longer in action, but the legacy of them lives on. It split people down into these different groups. And the framing of this affects the kind of support that someone might receive. So they might be supported if the kinds of circumstances of of their homelessness are deemed to be outside of their own control, for example, through mental or physical health support or through schemes to find work. But they might be punished if they're deemed to have had some control over their homelessness or they might not have the kind of entitlement to support that other people might have. And that in in itself is a kind of punishment.
1: To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program,
2: visit ConstructGTA.ca. And although we see some of this perhaps arguably changing in terms of official policy approaches in the UK, I would still argue that there's an underlying sense that people need to behave in, in perceived responsible ways to receive support. And this happens in policy and sometimes in service provision, too, I would say, on the ground, not in all cases, but in some cases, perhaps. And I would say more broadly, this fits kind of approaches that might be thought of as what's called a a deficits model of thinking about people experiencing homelessness, where they're understood in terms of what they're perceived to lack rather than what they're perceived to have and are often thought about in terms of needing some sort of intervention to correct this supposed issue. Now when I spoke to people in my research about how they felt about their own lives this framing really didn't match reality and people presented a much more mixed picture often referring to their strengths and skills and need for endurance um, when, when you're experiencing homelessness and hopes for the future and actually this framing of individual and structural causes starts to fall down when you talk to people and, and particularly when you look at lives in, as a long-term thing rather than the trigger point for, for, for causes of homelessness itself. So if we take substance misuse as, as, as an example, we know that not everyone in the general population is equally likely to experience this kind of issue. People in poverty are, are more likely to experience this kind of issue, it's often related to trauma. To mental health difficulty to lack of support during key moments. So although the trigger is seen as something that someone can control, actually, if we trace it back to those, those kinds of things, they're things that people really don't have control over. And so this idea that that we have these very clear-cut individual and structural causes starts to fall down. It becomes much more blurred and much less clear if we start to to think about it in this bigger picture way rather than looking at the trigger point, which is often one of the worst moments in people's lives anyway
1: yeah i think you know what you're referring to is, is trauma too right the, the, that trauma they experience and something we don't uh, many times we we don't address and wonder why uh, the, the behavior keeps repeating because we haven't supported the trauma, right? Moving through. Uh, it's so fascinating. Everything uh, that, that you're saying here, how we look at it. I think, I mean, part of why we do this podcast and why uh, Stephanie and the Canadian Alliance and homelessness does so much public awareness and education. And we try as well is really that your average Canadian, the, the way they would see or average person with the way they see a uh, person experiencing homelessness is really what's represented badly in media of uh uh, you know, uh, people on the street of that downtown Toronto guy, in our case, that downtown issue of someone asking for change or someone, you know, uh, you know, if I give them money, are they going to go do this, use substances or, or whatever, right? So we, we, we work hard to change that. We worked hard, uh, I think, in the whole sector around the world to stop this, are they ready for service? Let's get them ready and then they can have it rather than are they ready for housing, that kind of thing. Uh, going forward to just you know, give it to them, and then wrap the right services around them. Uh, you, were, you were kind enough to share a lot of re- of your research uh, with us, and it was fascinating, so I was digging through some of it, and I saw that you've used the idea of the four pains of homelessness. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, of course, yeah, and, and before I move on to talk about that, I should say I don't think that, that uh, those kinds of notions that you spoke about there are uh, uh, exclusive to Canada by any means that's certainly the case in the UK and, and yeah we have a lot of conversations of those sorts uh, with with people. Um, in terms of the, the pains of homelessness this borrows a notion a concept of pains from a book called the Society of Captives by someone called Gresham and Sykes which is actually a book about prisons and in this book Sykes proposes that there are five pains of imprisonment So these are the deprivation of liberty, of goods and services, of of heterosexual relationships, of autonomy and of security. And these are all different sorts of losses from what most people might expect to have. They're not necessarily physical pains, but they're things that wound us in some way that we know are constantly present and inflict some sense of injury or hurt, either mental or physical on us, and attack our very sense of being and who we are. So Sykes talks about these in the context of prisons, which we can think of as as total institutions. And what I mean by this is that these are institutions that are closed off from wider society. They're, they're, they're totalizing in the sense that they're closed off and then separate. I think in a similar way, we, we can think of rough sleeping as having some totalizing effects. Now, I think it's it's not the case that people are entirely cut off. I think that's Probably a bit of a stereotype, but there are ways in which people describe being away from the house population in some very obvious ways, perhaps in terms of thinking about accommodation, but also in other ways, such as being just having autonomy, being able to control what you do in your own life, being able to do it at the times that you want to do it, being able to just have a place to store your own belongings, being able to meet with friends or family without a sense of being embarrassed about the situation. So, in this way, I think there is similar ways in which homelessness and, and rough sleeping in particular has these features of exclusion and of deprivation. So from this, when I spoke to people about their experiencing uh, experiences, I thought there were four pains of homelessness, broadly speaking, that, that came out from this. And these were the, the lack of access to resources, the suffering of stigma, frustrations of process and then about the perils of precariousness, this kind of sense of precariousness is is ever present. So if we take these in turn, for me, the lack of access to resources primarily is about access to shelter, to a place to store one's own belongings, a place to be, just a place to exist. And this really leading to a sense of vulnerability, of feeling exposed to the elements in a very physical way, but also to danger. And then on top of this, being able to access goods and services where people were often reliant on someone else. So for example, if if they needed to use washing facilities or toilet facilities, only being able to do that at a time that their local McDonald's was open, for example, or their local supermarket was open. And so this meant that even the most basic things for, for a house population, being able to wash, being able to go to the toilet, being able to charge your phone, became so much more complex for people experiencing homelessness. Then moving on to thinking about stigma, this is in in kind of the the classic study on this by someone called Irving Goffman, he talks about this as being a spoiled identity. And for me, this is about the sense of of embarrassment or shame that lots of people spoke about feeling in, in terms of experiencing homelessness. The really dehumanizing aspects of, of homelessness, that kind of thing where where someone might be um, might be identified as being homelessness and, and might experience verbal or physical abuse as a result of that. Where on top of that, there's a a, a sense that somehow the lives of someone, of the life of someone that's experienced homelessness is somehow less valued than someone else. And that sense that their their voice isn't being heard um, by others that actually they don't matter as much to society to society and the impact of this on themselves as an individual. Then, if we move on to think about the frustrations of process, this is for me really about people often having to engage in processes over which they have little control, and which often seem counterintuitive to them, often to access quite basic amenities or services and this could really enforce this sense of stigma this sense that actually they, they have to do these things because they're experiencing homelessness so these happen in terms of um formal processes having to meet certain criteria having quite long detailed quite invasive processes to go through that ask quite personal sensitive questions without an obvious reason why and people having to negotiate these and renegotiate them when they change but also the informal aspects of this, knowing a local homelessness scene, if you like, who's who, what services are available, what those services offer, what criteria you have to meet to, to be able to access those services. These are all things that have to be negotiated by people when they're experiencing homelessness. And this is quite a frustrating sense of process, I, I, I felt in terms of talking to people, that that frustration really came through. And then in terms of thinking about precariousness, This was in terms of financial precariousness, uh, the the sense of insecurity to do with safety and also in terms of access to services. These things are all quite insecure. They can all change quite quickly without a huge amount of warning necessarily, uh, but could have quite a big impact on people's lives. And I think for me, the, the kind of model of thinking about pains is is a flexible one. These are four ways in which I made sense of the stories that people told me. But I think that this idea that that homelessness kind of inflicts these injuries is something that that is quite universally felt by people. So the the individual pains, the the, the specifics about those pains and what people experience probably change from individual to individual. But I think the idea that, that there are pains of homelessness can be a useful one for thinking about the kinds of things that people have to go through when they're experiencing homelessness and the kinds of effects that that can have on an individual.
0: Dan, you've written about uh, the need for radical and meaningful policy changes coming out of the pandemic. So given everything that you've just just explained to us with the four pains, what are some of the changes that would have the most impact in helping to house as many folks as possible?
2: Well, for for me, I think that the kind of big story to come out of the pandemic is that a different policy approach is possible, um, which I think is is something that if you'd have said to people a couple of years ago it was the case, people would have doubted it much more than they do now. Um so at the start of the pandemic in the UK, we saw big moves to find temporary accommodation for people sleeping rough, but also attempts to try and stem the flow of people becoming homelessness through addressing key causes such as eviction from properties. Whilst these haven't fully resolved some of the issues that exist, many more people have been placed into accommodation than was the case previously. And although some people have still become homelessness, there's some evidence to suggest that these interventions have made some level of difference, even if they haven't fully resolved this. Now, in my view, this offers us a different way for thinking about why homelessness matters so that the frame or lens through which we approach homelessness then can change. And that means that our approach to thinking about responses can change, too. So for me, I think we need to move away from as as far as possible, this sense of framing things through deservingness, through moral judgments about a person's character and the choices supposedly that they've made. I think that this is fundamentally unhelpful for trying to house people and and for people to see value in their own lives. I think it's actually really damaging. I think if we move to an approach that sees housing as a fundamental right for people and thinking about this as a health issue as we perhaps saw a little more during the pandemic, then I think this can change the lens through which we, we see the reasons why we should try and support people into housing and the kinds of approaches that we would take. So we know that people They're experiencing homelessness tend to die younger than the general population and that they also have much worse health outcomes both whilst experiencing homelessness and potentially afterwards too so if we take this kind of approach well then the reasons why we would get involved change and the kinds of ways in which we would get involved change it becomes much less about punishment and much more about how we can support people in in ways that that probably speak to to what you'd alluded to earlier about housing and then wrapping services around people rather than saying no you mustn't meet these criteria first those kinds of housing first approaches so i think of course the other thing is that, that to make that work we need properly funded services and and i think again the pandemic has shown us that, that that is possible a different funding model is possible um but whether we see that in the longer term we'll have to wait and see so I think that we can see that other approach is possible and, and and now we have evidence to kind of prove that it's possible. And that is a big thing I think that can help to change people's minds, because we can say, well, this isn't just a, a notional suggestion that things can be different. We know that it can be because it's been done.
0: Absolutely. And I'm I'm loath to bring this up. Um, I do not love this term, I think it was very damaging and dangerous and it just exemplifies everything that's gone awry uh, in the world Um, and I think you know what I'm building up to. Um, So while folks are very familiar with Brexit you know I, I, I As an outsider, as my personal perspective, I just think it was disastrous on so many different levels, you know, so when you first saw that, when I first saw the campaigning from afar um, and the idea that we can fix our problems if we close our borders, because look at how that's never worked before, but it'll work for us somehow, Um, we're starting to really see this impact trickle down um that I think a lot of the folks who opposed Brexit were were trying to say from the beginning um and now we're seeing it really come into fruition so can you can you tell us uh what the impact of Brexit has been on migrants and rough sleepers in the UK yeah
2: sure so I think I think you're right I think one of the the things about Brexit Brexit has been this kind of Toxic um, kind of narrative or discourse or way of thinking about things relating to immigration that that I think was a big factor in the the Brexit vote and and certainly a lot of the campaigning around that. So I think that then has an impact for 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 thinking about rough sleeping and migration um, in in terms of the kind of policy that becomes seen as legitimate and possible within the UK. So. Recently, the the government here announced that immigration rules for for people um, would allow them to refuse people the right to stay in the UK if they were found to have been sleeping rough in the UK. And that applies to people from within and outside of the EU. Now, in itself, that approach isn't new. Governments have tried it before. Um, It was part of a a policy document back in 2012. And then... um, later on as, as part of a pilot run by the Home Office in the UK called Operation of Those. This looked to deport EU nationals in London who were sleeping rough, and then was adopted as part of government policy. And this was co- argued to be under the guise that they were abusing their right to free movement. Now, this was challenged in the courts at the time, and that challenge was successful. But of course, in a, in a, in a Brexit situation where, where borders are, uh, are closed with the EU, and there isn't this access to free movement, the, the kind of legal context potentially is different. So I think we might see a different way of that, that policy working out this time. And, and I think we might see larger numbers of, of, of people being deported related to um, experiencing rough sleeping, which is, is is pretty terrible, really.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's hor- horrifying to, to think, you know, um, yeah. Let, let's hope we can push back and, and, and make some change around that. Listen, Dan, the work you're doing is incredible, it's impactful, it's important. I want more people to uh, to read uh, all your research. Where can people go to find out more and uh, check out all the wonderful research you've done?
2: Thank you very much. Um, my, my Open University profile probably has the most up-to-date information about my work. Um, probably the easiest way of, of finding this is to search online for Open University Dan Muck as in MC, uh, short for McCulloch, which is my surname, but it it saves people attempting to try and spell that, which is a challenge. Um, So if you do that, my profile probably should be one of the top results from that kind of search. Um, And that's one of the benefits, I guess, of having an unusual surname is that that pushes me to the top of those results. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I definitely feel you, <laughs> the last <laughs> name of Secha. So yeah, very easy to find if you know how to spell it. Yeah. Um, well, Dan, it was really wonderful to hear from you today and really like very resonating message, I think for Michael and I and our listeners. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Yeah, you you know, you're, you're at the top of the search and the top of our list for great people doing great work. So thank you, Dan. Um, for joining us today and can't wait to share this with uh, the rest of the world. Thanks very much. Wow, Steph, another great guest. I was just fascinated uh, with that. Um, and, you know, when he's talking, we're, and as much as we think the world is different all over, you know, there's a lot of similarities. We're doing a lot of the same things as governments change, as policy changes. Um, and so it's fascinating to, to hear about that. And even the some of the parts but you know here's the silver lining of the pandemic right we did the same thing and and people are having the same questions around hey we, we bought a lot of hotels we we pleased? we've created all these new spaces and programs temporarily will what happens after because the problem doesn't get better on its own right the challenge doesn't so you know fascinating to, to hear about that and hear uh, Dan talk about uh, all the different things happening in the UK
0: Yeah, I agree. And when I think about how we structure the folks who are deserving of our care and folks who aren't, you know, that that nimbyism sentiment, the when we're trying, yeah, trying to figure out who deserves funding and who doesn't basically based on uh, gut reactions versus like evidence. And I just think about um, this recent tour that was happening in the downtown side here in Vancouver, um, which is, you know one of the most notorious neighborhoods. And there was a tour that was basically set up for youth to go on and be scared straight. You know, so it's like, look, if you fall off the path, um, look where you're gonna end up. And it's just such a dehumanizing, awful thing that was happening. But thanks to public outcry, it's recently like just last week was canceled, um, hopefully indefinitely, and not just when the heat's off them. But I think it's just so um, exemplary of of the unnecessary fights that are happening. If we're just like focus on what works, focus on getting folks into housing, wrap them around supports. You know, it's it's amazing how we're like constantly repeating history. And while I do see a lot of change, I'm optimistic that like at least we've shown through this pandemic that, hey, we can make money fall from that tree when we need to. Let's continue that process um, and, and get these solutions. Because in the end, we actually will save money, right? When we have those proper interventions.
1: Uh, brilliant. I was going to say, and they could put money back on that tree because you're saving money in healthcare, mm-hmm. criminal justice system, um, right across, right? Every everybody wins, uh, and that's horrifying to hear what you said about the the uh, east side. I had read a little bit about that, right? I mean, yeah. Come on. Um, that that whole way of of looking at that, and it's just interesting. Even when we look at say York Region, York Region uh, was kind of a little later into the game realizing that there is a challenge around people experiencing homelessness. And when they built different support services around it, they did it uh, very uh, purposeful where, hey, first we're going to do families, a lot of empathy for families, right? People. Uh, and then we did uh, women uh, fleeing violence, etc. you know, empathy there, youth, some empathy. Men are the final, and, and that's happening in New York region right now. They've announced a new site, but yeah. help is push people don't have a lot of empathy for men experiencing homelessness right so different levels even there, uh yeah. gender related or family related so who's deserving who's not and we we've got to do our work we've got to do more work we got to do this podcast so we, we change um public opinion like they did in the east side to make that stop happen.
0: absolutely yeah well michael thank you so much for inviting dan on it was really great to hear from him and i guess i'll see you next week
1: see you then